This is a Federal News Network podcast. The best antidote to the current stock market might be Dramamine. The swooping ups and downs are enough to give anyone motion sickness, for federal employees not the least. Here with some strategic advice, certified financial advisor Arthur Stein. And Art, it goes up, it goes down, day by day. The other issue I think we should talk about is the fact that the bond market is no longer, at least at this time, a great antidote to what's happening in stocks. Yeah, what's really unusual about this year isn't the size of the declines in the stock market. It's the size of the declines in the bond market. And uh, this could be the worst bond market returns I've seen in maybe the last 40 years or maybe in the history of the United States or going back to the 1800s. But it's been horrible. And just as an example, the F fund in the TSP, which is based upon a bond index, which is U.S. bonds, federal bonds, and also corporate bonds, it's down 15% over the uh, last year. That's pretty horrible. Well, what is it that drives bond returns? Well, bond returns are pretty complicated, uh, but basically the Fed is raising interest rates, and that makes existing bonds less valuable because they have a lower interest rate. And that's driven down the values of existing bonds quite a bit. And could there also be less investor faith in the value of corporate bonds, say? It's certainly possible, Tom, because people are expecting a recession. And during a recession, more uh, companies than usual will go out of business. But we've also seen uh, major declines in Uh, U.S. Treasury bonds, and uh, people aren't worried about those being paid back. Those are complete, considered to be 100% safe. So it's more the increase in interest rates than anything else. Because there's also the factor of municipal and state bonds, because since those entities can't fund themselves into deficits, they do it by issuing bonds. Well, municipal bonds, you know, some of them are guaranteed by the uh, issuing state or municipality and some are not. Some municipal bonds may, uh, you know, fail to pay off. They may go bankrupt the institution. Uh, I don't know if you remember, but a long time ago there was a huge collapse in, uh, I think it was Oregon or Washington State of the uh, power company. It was a nuclear power plant, and it went bankrupt, and all the bondholders lost all their money. And that was a municipal bond. Yeah, literally a bond meltdown, you might call yeah, it. Yeah. Well, <laughs> well said, Tom. And, of course, investors, individual investors, especially those in the TSP where it's managed very carefully, have always figured, well, when the stock market is weak, shift more to bonds and vice versa. And so that typical strategy doesn't seem to work these days, does it? Well, it's not working this year in the last 12 months. Um, and it, there have certainly been times in the past when it did not work because it's not a given that when the stock market goes down, people switch their money into bonds and the bond market goes up. I mean, it's not unusual that that happens, but it is not a given. And do bond prices reflect demand? I mean, stocks go up when lots of people want to buy them, mm-hmm. just like some other commodity. But bonds are issued with a given interest rate. So is the demand pricing? Absolutely. 
Demand pricing uh, does affect bond values. In one easy example is with uh, U.S. government bonds. When there's trouble in the world, many people want a completely safe investment. So they switch their money uh, or they invest more in U.S. Treasury bonds, drives up the value of U.S. Treasury bonds. That lowers the interest rate, which is good for us. Also affects it can affect the value of the U.S. dollar, all kinds of things. Well, let's hope those people don't read the Congressional Budget Office reports for the long term. We're speaking with Art Stein, the certified financial advisor in Bethesda, Maryland. And so for the individual federal investor, especially one who was thinking, well, you know, maybe it's time to think about relying on that TSP as part of my retirement. Should you just put your head in the sand and not look at your portfolio for a couple of years? Should you change your allocations now? Or Well, you know, some people, you know, if you're working, you can af- uh, afford to put your head in the sand. And we recommend that people continue to invest in the various TSP funds and not just run to the G fund because that it's not down this year. It's the only TSP fund that is not down. All the L funds, the life cycle funds are also down. But the L fund, some of them are heavily into the G fund themselves. Yeah, but even the most conservative L fund, which is the L income fund, it's 76% bonds. About 70% of that 76% is the G fund, but it's down 3.6% over the last 12 months. I mean, it's just, you know, the phrase you hear and that I end up using a lot, which makes me mad because I feel so, you know, repetitive. There's no place to hide. Everything's down. And that's why, you know, good time for people who are working and investing Uh, bad times uh, for people who are taking money out of their investments to live on. So short of trying to pick stocks, which I think most qualified advisors tell people, don't try to pick stocks. You can't time the market. Some people seem to have this talent. They can also maybe play the violin. I don't know. But otherwise, then, in some ways, it's a good time to keep that regular allocation of your income toward your investments because your income averaging, what you're buying – And if you believe in the system, it's going to go up eventually. So you don't want to sell out now, in other words, and sell low and then chase it later. Yeah, we recommend uh, that people don't sell because the market's down. You actually want to – that's a good – historically, that's been a great time to buy. All right. What other advice do you have then for people right now? Uh, You know, I think you have to think of your stock investments, the stock funds and the TSP as a long-term investment. And, you know, once interest rates stop going down and stabilize, you know, we're hoping that the bond funds come back in a very strong way. And those of us that remember 1987, when you had a serious market setback, this doesn't quite look as bad as what happened then either, I don't think. No. As I said, this for bond investors and bond investments, this is as bad as it's been in at least 40 years. For stock investors, it doesn't even come close to the largest declines. I mean, we're down about 25, 30%, depending upon timing and things. You know, in uh, 2008, we the C fund was down 55%. The S fund was down even more. 
Yeah, the cable networks were running the tickers on their crawlers, the tickers on their crawlers, showing, you know, the minute-by-minute market declines. You're not seeing that this time. Yeah, and, you know, if you're looking at the minute-by-minute market declines, you're only going to get yourself in trouble. Art Stein is a certified financial advisor in Bethesda, Maryland. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you, Tom. And we'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your shows. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. After an exemplary career as a former executive at the FBI, focused on policy and strategy, Sasha O'Connell, Ph.D., is guiding future federal leaders as the executive in residence in the School of Public Affairs at American University. Sasha joins host Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, to discuss her exciting career, the future of the federal workforce, and the lessons she's learned along the way. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, and today I'm thrilled to be joined by Sasha O'Connell. Sasha is an executive in residence in the Department of Justice, Law, and Criminology at the School of Public Affairs at American University and spent the majority of her career at the FBI and most recently as the organization's chief policy advisor, science and technology and the Section Chief of Office and Policy for the FBI's Deputy Director. Sasha, welcome. Jane, thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure. Can you give us an example of someone early in your career that motivated you, and then and, and how did what did that look like? Sure, absolutely. So it sounds almost cliche, but it was the dining room table. So I grew up um, with a stepfather who spent 30 years at the Veterans Administration at the VA, and he talked at the dinner table. He started as a social worker and then sort of rose up into management, administration, and leadership. And his stories, right, and his approach really, really impacted me. My mom, interestingly, ended up in a career in public service. She was a prosecutor. She's currently a retired state superior court judge. Um, But she had a big career change also in her 40s. She went back to law school in her 40s. So getting all of that in the mix at a young age at the dinner table really, really impacted me um, in really specific ways. Yeah, that's amazing. My my father was part of um, the generation that took um, President Kennedy's call to action. And he took that to heart, and he went and worked at the Department of Interior and a number of other places in federal service. So it's, it's catching when, when you're around it. You've held a number of leadership roles at the FBI, which is historically a male-dominated organization. What skills or traits helped you most as you navigated that? It's such a, it's an interesting and challenging yeah. sort of situation and question. One, I don't think I still am reflecting on. I've been out of the FBI about six years, and I'm sort of still thinking about it. I think the bottom line was when I was there, and I really grew up there. Um, I didn't, I didn't know any different. I grew up with male cousins and brothers, and you know, it was sort of a continuation of, of my existence. So it did, you know, in retrospect, it, it was a really unique situation, but it didn't necessarily feel that way for me at the time. I think staying mission-focused, staying not about me, staying flexible in terms of problem-solving all helped me. I will say there's resources today that weren't there when I was there, or certainly when I was starting out. There's a lot of affinity groups for women in national security, women in federal law enforcement. And I will say I think I would have really benefited from access to those kind of resources as I was coming up. 
Um, I had both incredible mentors, men and women, um, women across the organization who I became very close with, who were incredible supports, not just getting the job and starting out, but sort of matriculating through. But again, I'm really sort of proud of and involved in some of the work of those external organizations that bring women across government, um, executive women in government, and those kind of organizations together, because I think it is really, really helpful um, as one moves through. Yeah, we we actually work with a, a number of those too, and and go to their events and conferences and support them because it's important. How has your leadership style developed or changed over the years? Well, I think I've gotten a little more confident in it. Right, the seeds were there at that dining room table. One thing um, that carried through that I learned from my stepdad was to focus on the process. He would talk at dinner about big ideas or big changes and how to get from here to there was part of his day job, and he thought about explicitly, was getting other people on board, getting that stakeholder engagement, getting other people to think it was their idea if that was required. And that's something I started out with as a gift, right, that kind of approach. And then I got confidence in that, and then I added things. I will say, as I moved on, my appreciation for taking care of is maybe the wrong word, but really focusing on the people who work with you and for you in some instances um, you know, making sure that they have what they need to be successful in a tactical way. But then also something I definitely learned at the FBI as I went along is, you know, the importance of creating an environment that is supportive and inspiring. You know, we joke about it, but food has played a pretty serious role um, in my leadership style over time. Um, I learned from great mentors. I worked with Bill Estevez at the FBI who had a full-scale cappuccino maker at his cubicle, right, and would host coffee hour, and you'd see the steam rising across the cubicles. Um, I worked with a, a great friend who used to carry hot frittatas for breakfast celebrations on the, on the metro, right, in one of those sort of coolie bags. Um, and so I've sort of, I think it's been additive in terms of learning, getting confidence in my approach, and then adding these pieces as I go that I've certainly learned from mentors and colleagues. And clearly you never let anything get in your way. You were mission-focused, as you mentioned, and you just got the job done no matter what was in front of you. Well, I wish, I wish, Jane, it was, it was that easy. I mean, I think we had a lot of success. Um, one thing has always been my approach when starting out as a leader, too, is to solve near-term problems. I always say sort of deliver short and then you can push them long, right? So we've, we don't always succeed in those long-term goals or those, you know, sort of blue-sky ideas as leaders we want to achieve. Um, but we deliver on those short-term pieces, right? And you get that buy-in from the stakeholders. And then often you can push toward those bigger dreams, hopes, aspirations, and goals. Um, I would like to say I was 100% on both fronts. <laughs> I'm not sure your characterization is 100% accurate there, but I'll take it um, in, this, in this sense. Looking back, what, what's one piece of advice you might have given your younger self when you first started? Yeah, it's, it's interesting today, too, working with students, I get that chance, right, to give my, essentially, my younger self um, advice every day. And one thing we talk a lot about, and I wish I had thought more explicitly about, is really, it's about calibration, right? And so I always think Emeril Lagasse would say, like, a stove has dials for a reason, right? It's not like all hot or all cold. And I think it's the same here. In some ways, in my career, I had to learn to tone it down, right? And to, you know, certainly at the FBI, sometimes you need to take that back seat at a meeting and wait to be invited to the table. And that's really the appropriate way to build rapport, relationships, and trust. Other times, I needed to learn to tune it up, right, to up the volume a little bit. Um, I had a wonderful boss, Dave Schlendorf, who we were in a meeting together with big bosses at the FBI once, and I was working for Dave. 
And we left the meeting and we were walking back to the office and I made a point. I don't even remember what the point was now. And he stopped in the hall and said, why didn't you say that in the meeting? You're not helping me, right? Telling me this now. Now I have to go back and fix this. And I realized, so well, sometimes you have to tone it down. Sometimes you have to tone it up. And that modulation, that sort of volume control about when to lean in and out, if you will, um, that's, you know, even just thinking about that explicitly for folks starting out, I think is really helpful because it's not one size fits all. Right. I, I totally agree and understand that it isn't one size fits all. And a lot of leadership is described in bumper stickers, sayings, and I don't think that's realistic. I think it's situationally dependent and you have to be self-aware and aware of your circumstances to adjust. That's well said. You're training the next generation, or helping to train them, federal leaders through AU's School of Public Affairs, how how do we encourage, how do you encourage young people to answer the call of federal service? You know, I'm so lucky at AU. We we draw in, right, students who are primed for this um, and who are passionate when they walk in our doors. Even with that population, you know, there, there are headwinds, right? USA Jobs, right? Just even getting educated, these pieces. So so helping with that is a whole set of work. I'm also really passionate about, as you point out, reaching out to a diversity of folks who haven't even thought about these careers as careers. I had a conversation with a young woman the other day, and she was talking about law school. It's, I'm, I'm fully supportive of law school. And I said, have you ever thought about a career in, in federal service? And she said, uh, isn't that for old people? <laughs> I said, uh, <laughs> um, okay. So, you know, I mean, there's an education to do, right? Clearly, she's never seen the softball leagues, you know, down on the mall or kickball or any of the fun we all have in town where we certainly did when we were younger. But I, I really try, again, podcasts like this and other venues to put myself out there and really talk about what it's like, the opportunities I had at the FBI to be in the middle of the mission space and to explain that the federal government needs all kinds of skills, right, and diversity of thought, right, and diversity of people. So so there's that sort of working with the group that's primed for us, and we need to help them get over those barriers, get in and then stay, and stay um, engaged and passionate and then there's reaching those new audiences. And there's a lot of work both places, but it's a lot of fun to work with young folks who are passionate about it. So I'm really lucky in my current job. And career civil service is a great path if somebody wants to take it. Our board is 100% SES level career civil servants. They are all dedicated. They have a real passion for what they're doing. They could go work anywhere, but they choose federal service. And there's no place, I always tell young folks who ask me about it, there's no place you're going to get the level of responsibility quickly as you do in federal service, right? And, and yes, yeah, sometimes things move slow. It's supposed to move slow, right? We talk about the reasons for that, too. But there's, there's really no other industry, maybe some startups you might get this experience, but really where you can be in the middle of mission space, whether you're passionate about the environment or national security or health care, you know, public health, and you're going to get in there quickly, um, and you're going to get in the mix and get exposure, experience, and opportunity for impact that's really unlike any other career. Perfect. Well, thank you, Sasha, and thanks to everyone for listening. I'm Shane Canfield, and this has been the Lessons in Leadership podcast. Talk to you next time. 
Reconnect with a carpool or vanpool. Even if you're commuting just a few days a week, Commuter Connections can match you with others that live and work near or at the same place as you. Prefer taking the bus or train? There's never been a better time to reconnect with transit. Plus, you have the added comfort of knowing Guaranteed Ride Home is there for any unexpected emergency for free. For more options, visit commuterconnections.org or call 1-800-745-RIDE. Some restrictions apply.